Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The grocery store sticker shock is going to get worse this fall. Hamilton's municipal election comes with a crowded race in Ward 4. Is the city of Hamilton ready to take another big economic jump? The Ticats and Red Blacks hook up in a battle of winless teams. After much backlash, Hockey Canada is reopening a sexual assault investigation. And the roar along Toronto's lakeshore returns this weekend. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Chicken, I don't even know how I'm going to explain it to my customers. I mean, it's scary. I've never seen chicken at that kind of price. It's ridiculous. That is the voice of grocery store owner Munther Zeed profiled in a... A new series on Global News. Just when you thought prices at the grocery store had soared high enough comes news of more sticker shock on the way? Question mark? Bolded? Underlined? Use the red font because it's a red flag on that question mark? My name is Rick Samprin. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. And yes, we're talking about food prices continuing to rise. Janet Music is a research program coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, one of the authors of, uh, well, several reports that have shown that prices continue to go higher. Janet, good morning. How are you? Good morning. The pressure on food prices has been impacted by inflation, uh, supply chain issues, severe labor shortages, the impact of Omicron variants. We've had blockades, extreme weather disasters. Have I missed anything? What seems to be a perfect storm here? Well, I mean, I hope you haven't missed anything because those things are quite enough, actually, for consumers and and producers alike. You know, we often think that consumers are alone in this kind of, as you call it, perfect storm of rising prices. But, you know, we have to think of producers as well, farmers and manufacturers, and all of their inputs have risen uh, in cost as well, which ends up down the line costing us at the retail uh, counter. Price of milk is expected to rise for the second time this year. What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. And so milk is an interesting commodity here because of the way it's regulated. So we actually get to see when you know, they announce when they're going to raise prices, uh, you know, and, and that can sometimes make consumers really cynical. But, you know, other products at the retail counter are also rising in prices. We just don't get that announcement. So if you imagine, you know, Chips Ahoy, which is my personal favorite, you know, if they announced that their package of cookies was going up 25 percent, people would be up in arms. And so with dairy, it's a bit you know, different. And and we have to feel for farmers, right? Their input costs, the gas, uh, you know, feed, water, all of those things to keep those cows healthy, all very expensive in the current financial climate. I, I got to say, Janet, if Chips Ahoy cookies went up 25%, I would grab my pitchfork out of the barn, <laughs> grab my torch, light it up, and I'm protesting. Um, Same, yeah. <laughs> back, back to milk, though. What are the what are the causes? Is it is it just inflation? Well, it's inflation, and also, you know, climate change. I think we don't talk about enough is this kind of big X factor, you know, and and cows. They take a lot of energy to keep those guys healthy. And, and when you have record heat waves in, 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 in the West, of course, it, or flooding uh, in BC, you know, it's, 
it's expensive to keep. So, you know, if we consumers and most of us don't have any cattle, but, you know, many of us have dogs and cats. And, you know, if you think about the veterinary bill for your pet, imagine that for a herd of cattle. So, you know, it, it is quite expensive to produce uh, to produce dairy and, and other types of meat as well. You know, even beef, you know, is expensive. And, and we do actually see beef prices rising, you know, last month, you know, a price of a you know, a luxury cut of steak is, you know, how I would describe it now up 52% since, since December. So, you know, expensive to produce and now expensive to buy. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Janet Music, Research Program Coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. We're talking about rising food prices. StatsCan says the overall price of food purchased at stores in May rose 9.7% compared to a year ago. How close is that to the price hike ceiling? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because we don't actually know, right? And so those numbers are going to come out again next Wednesday. And so, you know, we're hoping that this is it. So, you know, double digits is going to be hard to swallow, no pun intended, for the majority of consumers. And remember, you know, we all have to eat. So, you know, rising prices in food affect everyone regardless of income. And so that means a big chunk of discretionary funding for new cell phones or new clothes, back to school items, you know, all of those other things that we buy as consumers to keep our households running, that's going to take a hit because more of it's going to food. So, you know, we're hoping that you know, we're anticipating that July may be high again, uh, maybe even north of 10%, but then it should start coming down. The Bank of Canada just raised the interest rate, which was a bit shocking, um, but hopefully that has the intended effects that it, it's meant to. And of course, the growing season here in Canada, we're, we're coming up upon, you know, we're already into the fresh strawberries in many provinces, but, you know, we're, we're also coming upon harvests in different provinces across the country. And that typically tends to decrease prices. So, you know, if next week is bad, we're hoping that's the worst of it. Fingers crossed. Janet, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That is Janet Music Research Program Coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Uh, one thing we didn't get into was food theft from grocery stores. You heard off the top from Munther Zeed, a grocery store owner, who said they used to have a theft about once a week. That was the norm. Now, four to five a day. And many go unreported because you know, grocery stores call police. It might take half an hour, an hour, a couple of hours for the cops to respond because they're on to more emergent issues. And many grocery store owners just don't feel that they can stand by for that amount of time to report this theft. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, later on this year, Monday, October 24th, to be exact, we will go to the polls, or at least a fraction of the population, if history will repeat itself, and it likely will. We'll go to the polls to elect a new mayor and council here in Hamilton. And we're seeing over the last number of days and weeks, more and more people, more and more names added to the race for this year's municipal election, including uh, a bunch of names, a laundry list of names in Ward 4 for some reason. 
Peter Grafe is a professor of political science at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Peter, welcome back to the show. How are you? Great, thanks. Hope you're well. I'm good. Let's start with the mayor's race. It's always the, the, the key point, being the head of the city. We have uh, former Hamilton Chamber of Commerce President Keenan Loomis, who's in the race, former mayor and uh, liberal MP Bob Rutina, as well as former taxi union boss Ejaz Butt, all on the ballot right now. Do you expect anyone else, including former NDP leader Andrea Horvath, to enter the race? Well, funnily enough, I got a robo-poll last night asking <laughs> with, you know, uh, Andrea Horvath's name in the mix. So, uh, uh, you know, either that was her camp uh, thinking she was going to run or some other camp trying to see what her entry into the race would do. But, hmm. uh, I mean, you know, the fact that we haven't actually seen uh, Andrea Horvath uh, throw her hat in the ring yet and we're getting, you know, well into the summer is maybe a, a sign that she's having second thoughts. But... You know, I think we would expect uh, at least another name in this race uh, before we get to Labor Day. Horvath did um, not not too long ago accept a critic's role in the NDP party as she has stepped down as leader, as we all know. Does that is that a sign at all? Uh, I suppose. Although, I mean, you know, in, in any case, to run uh, in the municipal election would be you know, a matter of, you know, turning back uh, a mandate that she just got from, you know, the uh, people in part of Hamilton uh, uh, about a month ago. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it could be that uh, she really has to think about, you know, it's been, well, really since 2004 that she hasn't sat on Hamilton City Council. Uh, as a leader of the Ontario NDP, she hasn't been as close to the goings-on in the city. So, it is a. It would be a tough decision to to throw her hat into that race. Uh, Horvath and anyone else has until two p.m. on August the nineteenth to submit their nomination papers. So uh, they have uh, plenty of time to do so. We know in elections uh, in the past, there's always usually there's always an election issue. Back in the uh, twenty twenty one federal election, it was pandemic recovery. Although it's an election campaign that no one really wanted. Uh, this past summer was the provincial election. And cost of living, housing affordability might have been the top two. Uh, LRT was the big issue last time around here municipally. Is anything sticking out to you in terms of the biggest issue for this fall's election campaign? I think it's really going to depend on who's on that uh, starting line, right? If it is really a question of, uh, you know, Keaton Loomis, uh, Bob Pertina, and Ujaz Bhatt, I mean, I think it's really going to be, you know, it, may, it risks being about LRT again in a way. Uh, you know, with Loomis having been a, a large champion of that, uh, you know, receiving the uh, support this week of Leuna, uh, who have also been a big supporter of that and in some ways, you know, helped save that project uh, by, you know, lobbying the Ford government. And of course, Bob Bertina being a, a strong opponent of, of that project. You know, if someone like uh, Andrea Horvath ended up on the starting line, then that, that might change. And we might have a, a one really about the question of Hamilton's urban boundary, which really... Uh, you know, it was a big issue for council, but also we saw, uh, you know, strong support for maintaining the current boundary and the, the consultations around that. Um, you know, there, you know, and Andrea Horvath, or even a Bob Pertina, who in the past has, uh, you know, made arguments against urban sprawl, uh, could really make that the issue against Keenan Loomis, who's been much more kind of wishy-washy uh, about it. And certainly you have Leuna, who would be in favor of expanding that in order to, you know, get more jobs building the suburbs. So, uh, you know, I think LRT and urban boundary uh, risk being, you know, big issues, but as always, uh, you know, uh, 
voters are concerned about things like taxes, uh, transit, uh, housing, and those kinds of questions will no doubt uh, also be part of their evaluation of, of who's running for mayor. We have a couple more minutes on Good Morning Hamilton with Peter Grafe, Professor of Political Science with McMaster University as we chat about the upcoming municipal election race in Hamilton. Voting day, by the way, is October the 24th. Why are there so many people, Peter, running in Ward 4? There's 10 candidates on the ballot right now. Um, the next most or active riding would have five. What's going on in Ward 4? Well, I mean, that is a good question. I mean, part of it is that, uh, you know, our municipal elections provide such an advantage to incumbents uh, because they're names that are known. And they've also had some time to, uh, you know, do favors in, in the sense of helping people in, in their uh, in their ward with, you know, their issues. Um, and so it's very hard to dislodge a sitting councillor. So whenever there's an open ward, I, uh, and in this case, right, in Ward 4, uh, we have Sam Marula, who's decided not to run again, or at least he's announced that. Um, you know, in that instance, a lot of names come forward and people say, well, here's our chance. Uh, you know, we don't have to compete against an incumbent. You know, and then the next highest number, as you point out, is in Ward 5, where there's five people running. And again, there we had Chad Collins, uh, uh, you know, who vacated that seat when he was elected federally. I mean, the, I guess the exception to this would be Ward 15, mm-hmm. where, where Councillor uh, Partridge has announced she's uh, not running again. But we have no one nominated yet in that case. But, you know, that's why we see we see more names come forward. And, you know, for the sitting councillors, it's usually in their interest, in fact, to have more people run against them. We saw last time. You know, with Councillor Powertridge in Ward 15, narrowly won against only one opponent. Uh, Maria Pearson, uh, you know, again, a narrow victory uh, where there was only two people challenging her. And, and this time, one of those challengers is back. So that, you know, that might be an interesting one. But generally, there's a lot less interest in running against a sitting councillor because of the, the idea that uh, the councillors who are, who are there have such a huge name advantage. I mean, in the absence of political parties, uh, voters don't have a lot to hold on to to know who you know these other new names might mean and and why they might want to support them over the incumbent it's very true a lot of interest will be happening later on this fall as we go to the polls to vote a new mayor and council here in hamilton peter always appreciate your time thanks for your time and enjoy the day thank you very much that's peter grave professor of political science with mcmaster university you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml this is the 10th year in a row we've had over a billion dollars worth of development. Uh, the last two years we've seen over $2 billion in the first six months. Uh, it's a good indication that the investors and the developers are confident that the uh, city of uh, Hamilton has a, has a future in regards to uh, prosperity. Boy, is it ever. That's Hamilton's chief building official, Alan Shaw. The question comes about, is the city of Hamilton and all that it has achieved in terms of economic development, is our economic prowess set to take another big step forward? Jason Thorne is the general manager of planning and economic development with the city of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Jason, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Uh, last month, the city surpassed uh, $1 billion worth of construction value since the beginning of the year, the earliest we've ever hit that plateau. I think it's been 10 straight years of hitting that number. What does that mean? Apart from you know economic activity and building things, what does that mean from a, a perception standpoint? Well, it's really a, it's a key indicator that we track every year because 
it, it's a count of what is the total construction value of all of the construction happening in the city of all types. Everything from everything from a backyard shed to a to a fifty million dollar condo was all captured in that in that number. And and I think why it's so positive is it does reflect that development is actually happening. Um, it's not just um, speculation. It's not just you know developers. Um, applying for applications and then not building. This is a real measure of actual shovels in the ground, bricks and mortars buildings going up. Uh, And I think one of the really positive things is it's not being driven just by one type of development activity or development activity in just one part of the city. Uh, We're seeing it across the city and we're seeing it in all types, industrial, commercial, uh, residential. Um, There's a bit of everything happening. Is that a is that one billion dollar mark? Is that a rare number? Do other cities hit that mark, and and do other cities around the Golden Horseshoe achieve that plateau year in and year out? It is a rare number to sit to hit at the six month mark. That's for sure. So so we first celebrated. It was about a decade ago that Hamilton first celebrated hitting a billion dollars um, over the course of an entire year. Uh, the fact that we're now hitting that number in six months, uh, well, you use the word gangbusters. That, that's a pretty good word to use. <laughs> um, and, it, and it launches us up. We, we, we were typically, you know, maybe fifth or sixth in the province in terms of construction activity. Uh, we've jumped now up to, you know, maybe third or fourth um, in, in the province in terms of how much development is happening in the city. Jason Thorne is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jason is the General Manager of Planning and Economic Development with the City of Hamilton. We're seeing the ratio of... Um, uh, residential uh, construction to industrial or institutional construction, uh, 72 to 25 percent or thereabouts. With the thrust and the uh, highlight of affordable housing and more housing in this province, in this city, is that ratio going to change drastically over the next number of years? So we do have, this This year is showing very strong residential growth. The, the big story of the past two or three years was industrial, and that was a really good news for the city. For a while, industrial was lagging behind. And the fact that we've had the last couple of years, and it looks like 2022 will be the same as record years in industrial, is, is good news in terms of jobs for Hamiltonians, in terms of generating uh, new tax revenues for the city. Um, but certainly on the residential front, uh, last year was a record year uh, for the city. We were we were about 3,300 residential units were built last year. Um, we need to increase that. Uh, so I'm hopeful we'll get it, we'll, we'll we'll beat that record this year, and start to average in the in the three to four thousand new residential units per year. And that's really important, as you said, in terms of housing supply, housing affordability is to make sure we're building enough housing to keep up with our growth. We've just had a big debate regarding urban sprawl. I don't think, unless you've heard otherwise, we've heard from the province uh, specifically on how we're going to grow, because there is some debate on how that's going to be done, at least at the provincial level. Any update on that? We've not heard anything back from the province. Um, the uh, The city council did adopt uh, uh, the, the city strategy to accommodate growth without expanding the urban boundary. Uh, that, of course, does require provincial approval. So it's been with them for uh, well, a couple of months now, uh, and we haven't seen a response yet in terms of whether the province is going to approve that or whether they're going to be uh, making changes. Are you expecting pushback from the provincial level? Uh, well, certainly they've signaled that they've got concerns with the, uh, the that strategy, um, but, I, but I think we have to wait and see what they, uh, what they come back with. We have uh, Stelco lands that are going to be revamped. Pier 8 Promenade is on the horizon with big development there. Um, you know, infill development if the urban sprawl uh, issue moves forward, as is. What is the biggest opportunity in terms of economic development going forward in this city? 
I think probably the most exciting part of that answer is you, you can't really pick one thing. Uh, you, you've hit some key ones. The waterfront development is about to get rolling on Pier 8. Um, the Stelco lands opening up are a huge opportunity for the city. Um, there still continues to be a lot of industrial interest around the, uh, around the airport. And, uh, and we're seeing residential activity um, uh, really all over the city. We have major development proposals uh, where, uh, at the former Eastgate uh, Mall. Uh, we continue to see a lot of interest in the downtown core. Um, really, we're seeing residential sort of infill, intensification uh, interest all, all across the city. And, um, and, and to me, that's a great sign that it, this is a, a very robust economic growth that we're seeing. It's not reliant on just one big project or or one hot area in the city. It really is spread around. We have been hearing about a potential recession as early as next year. Is the Economic Development Department planning for that? And if so, how? So certainly it is, it, it's always a bit of a concern on the horizon. We, we haven't yet seen any sort of dip in development activity or applications coming in the door. Um, but that is, of course, always something that we are keeping our eyes on. So we actually have um, economic development staff who specialize in all different sectors of the economy. Uh, and they work very closely with the, uh, the businesses and investors in the city to make sure that we're doing everything we can as a city to, uh, to, to keep the existing businesses we have, keep them thriving and expanding, and, and always looking to attract new investment to the city. Hamilton is a happening place, and Jason Thorne is one of the big reasons why. General Manager of the Planning and Economic Development Department for the City of Hamilton. Thanks for the time. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The only people that brings up 0-4 are everybody from the outside because that's what it is. You know, we've uh, unfortunately earned that, but we don't talk about that. If we spend our time looking backwards, we'll never move forward. That is Tiger Cats head coach Orlando Steinauer commenting on the team's 0-4 start. They host the Red Blacks tomorrow, both teams 0-4. Also this weekend, it's Touchdown Atlantic in Nova Scotia. And that's where we find our next guest, Chris O'Leary. He's a senior writer at CFL.ca. Chris, good morning. How are you? Hey, Rick. Doing good. Uh, nice to hear from you. Yeah, give us a lay of the land for this year's TD Atlantic game. What's happening? Um, well, it's, uh, it's, I feel like it's really starting to come together now. Uh, you know, just, just walking around Halifax. Uh, yesterday, you're starting to see kind of the, the festivals that the, the week has organized. Uh, pop up, uh, you know, starting to see people kind of pour into there. It's, it's starting to feel like, a, to me, it kind of reminds me of like a, a mini Grey Cup kind of vibe. And uh, yeah, just really nice to start. You're starting to see more uh, green shirts around around the city. Uh, you know, the, I think the buzz is starting to ramp up. We were at uh, Rough Riders practice yesterday over at St. Mary's University. We saw Brett Lauter there. He's from Truro, which is just, uh, I think, about 80 kilometers away from uh, from Halifax. Uh, you know, and he, he had a lot of uh, friends and family just even at the practice. And he kept... Uh, you know, kind of ducking out to the side and, and, and running over to the stands and saying hello to people. Um, it's fun. It's, uh, it, it's a really good atmosphere. There's uh, a good energy starting to build. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, really looking forward to a game. I think, I think it'll be a good game against with the, the, the Riders and, and the Argos on Saturday. It's going to be played at uh, Acadia University's uh, Raymond Fields in, uh, in Nova Scotia. Has the Garrett Marino suspension uh, pulled over some clouds over this game at all? I mean, I, I think it's, it's an issue that's, there obviously um I, I think having some sort of resolution to it is uh you know a step toward moving past it uh but no it, it, it's definitely still there and uh you know there, there weren't we didn't hear any questions on uh the night that the teams arrived 
Um, you know, I, I think it came up a little bit in riders practice yesterday. Um, you know, I, I feel like, you know, the, the week is so long between games that, uh, you know, you need something else to happen for, uh, people to have more things to talk about. <laughs> so I, I think just getting some games in might, um, create, create a little distance and, and start to put that in the review. But I mean, it's, it's just such a, it was such a bad hit. And I think obviously just such a, a big narrative after, uh, it's going to take some time for it to, uh, you know, to, to, to move along. I agree with that. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Chris O'Leary, senior writer, CFL.ca, as he and all of us get set to take in the Rough Riders Argonauts TD Atlantic game in Nova Scotia. The, the other question that arises whenever this sort of game comes about is whether or not we're ever going to see a 10th franchise in the Canadian Football League, and that being a franchise in Atlantic Canada. Are we, are we any closer to that? I wish I had the definitive answer on it. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, um, I, I think the, the one thing that I see from it is, you know, the, the league is very invested in making this happen. And, uh, you know, I think to that end, in the, in the short term, you know, they've got the game here this weekend. I think there are two more uh, through 2024. Uh, so, you know, there, there will be a presence that the league will have in this region for the next few years. And, um, you know, I, I, think, I think COVID just threw such a wrench in everything. It felt like there was some momentum. You know, we, we saw talk of a stadium, uh, you know, in, in, into early 2020. And then, of course, the world just kind of got stood on its head uh, for a, a couple of years. So I, I, I think that was a, a big disruption. Um, you know, I think the, the ownership group is still committed and interested and, and wants this to happen. But um, I, I think it'll just take some time to rebuild that momentum. And, and I, I think... At bare minimum, I think just the, the league being here this weekend and then for the next few years is a, a good stepping stone. And I think just kind of keeping it in people's minds here is a, a big a big step. And then hopefully there are more steps to, to come after that. Big game tonight in Winnipeg as the unbeaten Blue Bombers host the unbeaten Stampeders. Tomorrow it's Saskatchewan um, against Toronto. It's a home game for Toronto, even though it's in Atlantic Canada. The Argos are 1-2. and two. The Riders are 4-1. and one. The disparity between the West and the East has, has usually been great. This year, though, it's taken on a life of its own. Western teams are a combined 18-6. and six. Eastern teams are a combined 2-14. and 14. What is going on with East versus West? Man, Rick, I wish I, wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Funny, like, <laughs> and, you know, I, I spent the last uh, the six months of the offseason thinking that uh, this might be the strongest that I'd ever seen the East in my time covering the CFL. And you look at the, the offseason that Ottawa had, um, the, the last few years that the Tiger Cats have had, um, you, know, look at, you look at the Argos, that was a, a dogfight of a, an Eastern final. Um, and, then, and then the Alouettes, you know, who, who had made the playoffs the last two years and it seemed to be uh, trending in the right direction. And then um, I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen an entire division kind of just stumble out of the gate like this before. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, you, you mentioned the Ticats game uh, this, this weekend. And, you know, obviously a lot of Ticats fans listening. But um, I, I think that the one positive, if, you, if, you, if you're trying to find <laughs> something in that 2-14 that, uh, and 14 start for the, the division, um, it, it's just that it's, it's still there. I mean, it, you, you look at uh, any other season and you have an 0-4 start and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a really, really steep hill to climb. Um, whoever gets the win... Uh, between Hamilton and Ottawa this weekend is, um, you know, somehow <laughs> right, right back in it, and the, the division is there for up, still up for grabs. And uh, I mean, and, and Montreal certainly did the division a favor last night, uh, <laughs> letting that lead slip away to Edmonton. Um, so I mean, to me, that's the, the one thing that that I see is that you know it, it's it's still there, it's still up for grabs. Uh, you know, despite the bad starts, it's uh, a team like Hamilton can uh, 
you know, kind of get things together, get rolling and get on a run and kind of still make up some ground and have a good season this year. Absolutely. Four teams in the division, likely only two playoff spots going to be taken up and uh, we'll see if the Ticats can grab one of those before the season is done. Chris, we got to run. Thank you for your time today and enjoy TD Atlantic this weekend. Absolutely. Enjoy the week. That's Chris O'Leary, senior writer of CFL.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I like the initial auctions. I think there's probably going to be more to come, but I but I like the initial auctions. I think those are uh, positions that the, they weren't uh, at before. Uh, and they are there now. That is Sheldon Kennedy, a voice for victims following his own experience in hockey of being abused by then-coach Graham James back in the junior hockey circuit. Hockey Canada, as you probably heard, announcing yesterday it is reopening the investigation into the case of an alleged sexual assault in 2018 involving a woman and members of the World Junior Hockey Team. To talk about it is Mike Stubbs, host of London Live on sister station 980 CFPL in London and the play-by-play announcer of the London Knights. Mike, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Excellent. How are you? I'm good. We just heard from Sheldon Kennedy there. Uh, He says what he's heard and read from Hockey Canada is a good start. He's hopeful actions will follow suit. What what actions are we going to see here? Well, I think one of the things that we've got to look at right away, Rick, is something that is contained in that open letter that was released yesterday by Hockey Canada. And it's a line that they will need to stick to. And here's the line. It says changes to policies and procedures can occur with the stroke of a pen. Those changes are meaningless, however, without an equal commitment to addressing the toxic behavior that exists in many corners of the game. We know this change will not occur overnight, but we're committed to learning and working with our partners to do better. So in other words, we have written this letter, but the letter doesn't mean much unless we follow through with some action. And that's the report card that they've set out for themselves. And now everybody's going to be watching to make sure they follow it. And that change really is a culture change. Uh, The question always becomes, how do we measure that? That's a really good question. And that's just going to kind of come in a number of different ways. I think it'll come in the court of public opinion, which has been very active in what has been going on in this particular situation. And it will simply come through Hockey Canada itself. They have to earn back a lot of trust. They've lost a lot of sponsors. They certainly have been seen in a very different light when anybody said Hockey Canada before now. There was nothing ever bad to think about Hockey Canada. They're the organization that picks people who put this country in positions at international events to win gold medals. That was who Hockey Canada was. Now you say Hockey Canada and it has a really different connotation. So it kind of starts from here to see what they do. Federal government has frozen its funding toward Hockey Canada. You mentioned sponsors. Many major ones have taken a step from the hockey program. We know the World Juniors is going to begin next month. It was paused because of the pandemic back in the uh, winter. It's going to kick off next month. Uh, is what Canada Hockey Canada came out with yesterday enough to bring many or all of those sponsors back? Well, that's that's kind of... That's one of those things that remains to be seen. I think it will take some time because we're looking at sponsors who have been there, Rick, for years and years and years. Tim Hortons, Canadian Tire. When you say Hockey Canada, that means Canada. When you say Tim Hortons, when you say Canadian Tire, that right there, that means Canada. And so they're going to have to find 
whether or not they feel Hockey Canada is in a position where they can say, all right, they're they're back being a part of the fabric of this country. They're representing what we want to represent. And here we go. Let's get back on side with them. So I think it will take some time whether those sponsors ever come back. I, I don't know, because when you are going to make that commitment, you as an advertiser are looking at the court of public opinion. And right now the court of public opinion is still in wait and see. And I think those sponsors have to remain in that same state too. That court of public opinion can make their voice heard loudly at the World Juniors in Edmonton. Do you think this stain, this stench is going to affect ticket sales or attendance at the tournament, especially for games involving Canada? Given how quickly this tournament always sells out, I think it will. But in terms of... Not selling out? I'm not sure because at the end of the day, the World Juniors bring together hockey teams from all over the country. You're looking at the best of the best in that age range. And as much as it's being hosted by Canada, it's still Canada versus the United States. It's still Slovakia versus Czechia. And that's what fans will be going to see. This is kind of one of those things that is playing out in a a different realm. Yeah, I agree with you on that one as well. Mike, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Rick, thanks so much. Mike Stobbs, host of London Live on 980 CFPL and the play-by-play announcer of the London Knights. Uh, It'll be interesting in Edmonton next month to see if there's any signage, any protests, any anything uh, not related to the game Itself. That is going to be very interesting to see. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are talking racing because IndyCar racing returns to the streets of Toronto for the first time since 2019 as the Honda Indy roars along the lakeshore. And here to give us a sneak peek of what's going to happen this weekend is the host of Raceline Radio. You can hear it Sundays at 8 p.m. right here on 900 CHML, Eric Thomas. E.T., welcome back to the show. How are you? Nice to be back, buddy. Yeah, this is uh, this is the big deal. After a pandemic pause for two years, as you said, and the last one in 2019, something that has been, you know, ingrained in our racing, you know, idea and structure around here. And not just the GTA, but the whole, you know, Golden Horseshoe down through Niagara since 1986 and, and only dark for one year when you know, reunification happened. You know, it was a big, big part of the big racing scene for such a long time. And to have it gone for two years and then brought back. I mean, if you go right back to the very beginning, Rick, when the appeal of this race was this, is that everybody said, well, what's, what's IndyCars? The heroes of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the biggest track in the world, the biggest race in the world, the Indianapolis 500, were coming to Toronto to race on the streets of Toronto. A.J. Foyt, Mario and Michael Andretti, Alan Sir Jr., Danny Sullivan, Rick Mears, Emerson Fittipaldi, away it goes. They were here to race in Toronto, which made it so unique, and it was an instant boon to the economy of Toronto, and then to have it go away for a couple of years, you know, at the anticipation of, of being able to get it back on the racetrack this weekend is, is really something. And you can really, really see it and feel it. And there's a lot of happy people around here, I'll tell you. And I'll include myself in that bunch as well. Yeah, another name, too. Uh, Bobby Rahal won the original or the inaugural and Molson Indy is what it was called way back when. It was called back then, yeah. He yeah. did in 86 with Emerson Fittipaldi on the pole. And then the next year, 
87, Emerson won the race with Bobby Rahal on the pole. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 been, uh, it's been a long, long history, and it's been very, very odd not to have it around. So we're very happy that it's, that it's back. We talked to a couple of the drivers, and, and we talked to Jay Fry, who's the president of, uh, of IndyCar. He said, you know, it's funny. It's that old adage, you don't know what, what's the song, Joni Mitchell, you don't know what you got till it's gone. And he, and he said, you know, we, we understood the reason why they had to shut it down because of COVID. We all know that. But to have it back, you know, when, when I first drove into the place, he said uh, yesterday morning early, he said, I realized, ah, okay, now we're getting back to normal here. It just feels like we're back home again. And it's, the, it's probably, no, not probably, it is the most challenging street course that IndyCar has on their schedule. So the drivers really love the city. As an example, Marcus Erickson, the guy who won the Indy 500 this year, he's a huge hockey fan. And the last time they were here in 2019, they ran here as a rookie for Chip Ganassi. He had a couple of hours. He went to the Hockey Hall of Fame. And the race being downtown allows you to do stuff like that. So it was it's one of those unique deals, and we really missed it. And, of course, the city with the restaurants and the hotel trade has really taken a hit with COVID, and especially with the race not being here because this race is worth millions to the city in those regards, so it's nice to have it all back. Uh, Marcus Erickson. Erickson has a 20-point lead on uh, past Honda Indy Toronto winner uh, Will Power as they go at yep. it uh, this weekend in Toronto. We saw a huge crowds return for the Formula One race in Montreal this summer. Are we expecting the same kind of pent-up demand, that fervor for racing in Toronto this weekend? That's a, it's a good question, Rick. Yeah, and I think so, and I, a lot of few of us were discussing that very thing. I think the fact of the matter is that I think pre-event ticket sales have been very, very brisk. Today at the racetrack and today only, it's free admission for everybody. They ask you to make a, a donation to the Make-A-Wish uh, Foundation. But the kids under 12 are free all three days. Take the GO train to get in here. Don't try and park. It's, they drop you right off at the racetrack. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm anticipating a large crowd. The last few years that they ran this race, it was getting a little threadbare up there in the grandstands you know, for various reasons and what have you, but I'm thinking because it's been gone for two years. And the fact that we have two Toronto local drivers in the field with Devlin Dean Francesco and Dalton Kellett, uh, I think that, you know, that, that's, that's always a big drawing factor when you had James Hinchcliffe there and Jacques, and Jacques Villeneuve. And the only Canadian, the local guy to win the race twice was Paul Tracy in 93 and 2003. And the local guys always, always get a great big chunk of that grandstand. When Tracy won that race, in 93, the very first one, the grandstand was going crazy. And he says, I could actually hear the crowd roaring over the roar of the engine right behind my head with my helmet on. That's how loud they were. So they love their local guys. But the fact that the race is back, I'm anticipating probably close to a record crowd this weekend. And it looks like the weather's going to hold, too. So I think the numbers are going to be very, very good. Talking about the Honda Indy Toronto with Eric Thomas, the host of Raceline Radio, Sunday nights at 8, right here on 900 CHML. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, I was just looking at the track map. Are there any changes to it? No, you mean in the circuit itself, Rick? No, yeah. there aren't any changes. It'll know the track layout is exactly the same, but they had to, they've had to reconfigure. But it wasn't just for this year. Um, when they built that hotel at what is the pit out, they uh, were forced to reconfigure and move the pits basically to the to the would be the north side of the racetrack. So that part was configured uh, long before COVID hit. So they have made no real changes at all. I think the only structural changes in talking to the management here. Uh, is a little bit of reconfiguration of some of the stuff that's along Thunder Alley. That's the the uh, the exhibit area and the food area and all the stuff that goes on. You know, because there's lots of things to do here besides just watch the race. There's all kinds of uh, attractions going on, all kinds of refreshment and food possibilities. They reconfigured Thund Thunder Alley a little bit. That's a big part of the deal. I mean, 
how, how long did, did the, the race market itself as more than just a race? So there's more than just sitting in the grandstands and watching the cars go by. You know, there's a lot, there's lots of stuff here to do, especially, you know, for families. But no, they have not reconfigured the racetrack at all. And of course, with those concrete patches in the corners and the, uh, the annual frosty because of our infamous uh, Toronto and uh, Canadian winters, it's a challenging, challenging place. But no, there's been no reconfiguration of the track at all. And the drivers who have uh, experience here, you know, Will Power with, with multiple wins, Joseph Newgarden with multiple wins, Scott Dixon, you know, was a three-time winner as well. Uh, it won't take these guys long to get acclimatized. They qualify tomorrow and the race is on Sunday at around uh, 3.30 and we're all over the darn thing as we usually are. We only got about a minute. Um, who's the driver to watch this weekend? Well, I think I might have just mentioned those guys. Um, <laughs> the, 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 uh, I think I may have already handicapped for you because those are, those are the guys with the most amount of experience and the most amount of uh, of um, know-how and how to get around here and, and, and navigate this place. Uh, Mark, we mentioned Marcus Erickson, you know, the guy who's leading the points. I mean, he's he's got a lot more experience. I think that's, that's going to be good. Uh, just watching the two Canadians, I mean, DeFrancesco's a rookie, a freshman, you know, and Dalton Kellett running for AJ Foyt. Those guys are always interesting to watch. You know, and, and Kellett had a pretty good run early in the season at St. Pete. So there's a similarity there with three courses. So those are just some of the names to watch. Grab yourself a, a, a favorite and, a, and watch the Canadians. If you try and follow the whole field at that place, it, it's usually kind of impossible. Pick out a favorite and maybe one or two with the two Canadians and, and, see, and, and just follow a few of those guys and chart it. It seems to be the easiest way to do it. But I think I've mentioned a few to keep your eyes on this weekend. Because the race being around since 86, you got a lot of guys and a lot of history. You know how to get around here. So there's a lot of guys to watch if you want to you sort of play around with the answer that way. It is a highlight on the IndyCar circuit. Eric, always appreciate the time. Enjoy the race weekend. Take care, RZ. We'll talk to you next time. You got it. Eric Thomas, host of Raceline Radio. You can hear it Sunday evenings at 8 o'clock right here on 900 CHML. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.